0: Crows, known for being birds, famous for being spooky. Nobody thinks much about them, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why crows are secretly incredibly fascinating. There, folks, welcome to a whole new podcast episode. A podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm not alone because I'm joined by my co host Katie Golden. Katie, hello!
1: Hi, hey,
0: I'm glad you could get your shoulder crow ready for the taping. Mine (laughs) is not here, they had errands to do or something, they just (laughs) caught and left. I don't know why. Thank you very much to at Sticks on Discord. This is yet another of many supporter suggested topics. Katie, I, for one thing, I'm very excited to link a couple of episodes of Creature Feature because that podcast was the main thing I knew about crows going into researching this. And as always with this show, I provide the research. But Katie, what is your relationship to this topic or opinion of it? Uh, You know, beyond all the stuff I've heard.
1: Strongly in favor of crows. Very much am pro-crow. I love crows. I think they are not only just kind of beautiful animals. I love their mystique. Their whole goth aesthetic really does it for me. But also they're very smart. They're very intelligent. They have really interesting social behaviors, really interesting puzzle behavior, uh, puzzle solving behavior. They There are more species of crows than I think people realize. And then the whole Corvid family is really fascinating as well. So I love them. And I I grew up in, um, we we actually did have a good population of crows in Southern California. And it was always really, really cool, especially around once it started to get a little cooler, they would come by in the fall months and hang out in our yard. And I just always loved it. A group of crows has never meant anything other than just feeling kind of happy for me because it it didn't ever feel spooky. It just felt like, oh, it's it's nice. It's fall. The crows are crowing and they're hopping around and it's great.
0: Yeah, they really are everywhere, it turns out, or at least five continents. US culture, Canadian culture, European culture, they're sort of a horror bird. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, I thought of them as a cool bird and only one kind of bird and kind of the same as ravens. And I've learned differently about all that now, except that they're cool. They're still cool, but yeah, <laughs>
1: they're still cool. <laughs>
0: they're they're neat. I, I've never totally gotten the thing where they are supposed to be some harbinger of ghosts or something. It doesn't make sense.
1: That just makes them cooler, though. I still like that where it's like this is this is a little crow, and then he's surrounded by ghosts. That's that's cool. That's badass.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's just good to be friends with ghosts. Yeah, uh, I think.
1: I know. I feel like we've got this like crow and ghost business all wrong because if you're friends with crows, they can go out and find stuff for you and fly around. And if you're friends with ghosts, they can go through walls.
0: Yeah. You don't have to be limited to doors like you are with your other friends.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just like, hey, uh uh-oh, I'm out of toilet paper, ghost buddy, help me. And then they just sort of poltergeist your toilet paper through a wall. Perfect.
0: (laughs) And our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics in a segment called Let's Get Statistical, Statistical, I Wanna Get Statistical, Let Me Hear Those Numbers Talk, (laughs) Add Numbers Up.
1: This is good.
0: And uh, that name was submitted by L.S. Greger. Thank you, L.S. We have a new name for this every week. Please make them as silly and wacky and bad as possible. Submit through Discord or to siftpod at gmail.com. And first number here, this is this is a connection between Europe and America. And also, it turns out there's more than one crow species. Mm-hmm. His first number is 2011. That is the year when birders sighted a hooded crow in New York.
1: <gasps> what?
0: Yeah. Turns out uh, the, the hooded crow is one of the main European species along with yes. the carrion crow.
1: I see so many hooded crows here. I love them. Uh, I get to see them out my window they, are, they look like a crow, but they have a little grayish white patch on their backs. And they yeah. are very, They sound like a crow. They act like a crow. They just have an extra little decoration on them, and they're great. I love them.
0: Yeah, one of the ways I have grown about crows is being stoked about hooded crows. They look cool. It's, yes. it's a really neat gray on black pattern that's awesome. Yeah, and, and they... Just yeah. for
1: reference point, I, I live in northern Italy, so that's why we get them here, because they are uh, found in Europe.
0: Yeah, and uh, it, that seems to be why they do get sighted pretty frequently when they are in North America. The American Birding Association says in 2011, a hooded crow got spotted on Staten Island in New York. Also, in the early 2000s, there were sightings as far afield as Chicago, Illinois, New Braunfels, Texas the Salton Sea of California, and White Court, Alberta.
1: Wow. So is this because they are going far afield of their typical migration patterns? Are these like captive crows that have escaped? What, what's their whole deal? Did they did they go get on Spirit Airlines and get redirected somewhere where they didn't want to go?
0: That last thing, almost. We, we think either <laughs> they were captive and got released or more likely they got lost and rode ships. Like human ah, ships.
1: Ah, yeah, interesting. And I, I feel for them there. Like, whenever you get on one of those budget airlines, and then you get stuck in, you know, some airport somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and you're just a little hooded crow, and now everyone's taking photos of you. It's a nightmare.
0: Right. And you have a passport, but the picture, just the head looks black, right? So they can't tell you apart from other crows. They don't know.
1: Right. Uh, it's anti-crow discrimination. <laughs>
0: And this all leads to a first quick takeaway, which is takeaway number one. The world's crows are not just black feathered. And a lot of the audience of this podcast is in the U.S. or Canada, and in those countries we're most familiar with a species called the American crow or another species called the fish crow that in general look mostly black feathered, but it turns out there are more than 40 world species in the Corvus genus, a lot of those are crows and a lot of those have different patterns going on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Even the black crows like, you know, they do have a bit of iridescence to their feathers, which is really pretty. It, there is a great diversity of crow that I think is underappreciated.
0: I had no idea till talking to you about hooded crows the other day and then researching. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> like the this hooded crow, really recommend it. Really cool gray section of the body. There's the pied crow, which is an African species that has a white central section of the body.
1: Got a little vest. I, I like the pied crow because they've got a little uh waistcoat. <laughs> yeah. Very dignified.
0: Yeah. A lot of little gentlemen out there, you know? It's yeah.
1: <laughs> you just give them a little pocket watch.
0: There's also a species called the house crow, which is mainly an Asian crow, but it's also known for catching rides on human ships on purpose not like this lost Mm. crow that was in the U.S. (laughs) And they often look grayish or bluish or a mix of both. And like you said, birders and people who think about this point out that the feathers of crows can really vary, even if it's a black crow. Ornithologist David Sibley says that the wing and tail of crows tend to have glossier feathers than the rest of the body. And even the American crow can have a purplish or bluish tint in the right light. Like there's color variety to this famously black bird.
1: You mentioned that the house crow intentionally cut a ride on a ship. Where are they going? What are they doing?
0: Apparently, they're going everywhere, and then they are especially eating food on the boats. Like it doesn't seem like they're trying to. <laughs>
1: I see. This is a cruise for the crows.
0: Yeah, From cruise. It, it doesn't really seem like they're trying to do the human equivalent of relocating. They're right. just catching ships and the food on the ships, and, and yeah, they're like cruise ship passengers almost.
1: They're a crow away. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs>
1: oh, I, I love that for them. I want little crow cruises where they can just hang out and eat roadkill and sip yeah. little sip fuzzy navels.
0: I'm also I'm realizing that one of the biggest differences between crows and ravens is the puns. Folks, it's totally different puns depending on which bird you're talking about, right? You can't you can't do a crow away joke about ravens; doesn't work.
1: No, ravens are too. This is the thing: is ravens are a little stuffier because you can't because the word raven isn't as funny as the word crow.
0: Yeah, it's true. Which is,
1: you know, because <laughs> <laughs> so, ravens got the Edgar Allan Poe connection; they have this sort of like mystique, and then I feel like crows get to just be a little sillier.
0: It really feels that way, and and they are different birds. And I'm in particular linking the creature feature episode with guest Dr. Kaylee Swift of the University of Washington. Yes, where Katie and Dr. Swift cover the main ways to tell them apart, but also it's pretty tricky unless you have a really good look at them. Uh, especially American crows versus most raven species. It, it's the ravens are generally bigger, generally lower pitch noises, and a different tail shape. Ravens have a pointier tail. And my favorite difference I learned is from Creature Feature, because Katie very effectively plays the sound of crows and the sound of ravens. It's a different pitch. It's a different sound.
1: Yeah, I feel like the crow call is more of the kind of cartoonish caw sound. And then the raven call is a little bit more of a croaking sound, a little lower pitch.
0: And Katie has great freesound.org versions of both sounds. Uh, We're going to play them for you now. Here first is the sound of a crow. Okay, you know, fun. And then here's the more serious sound, as you'll hear, of a raven.
1: I feel like I should be giving, like, American Idol comments on this. Like, like it was a little pitchy dog.
0: <laughs> it's fun that you are Randy. That's fun. I'll be <laughs> Randy, too. We'll just be two Randys.
1: Everyone's Randy. Listen,
0: dog. In a,
1: in a perfect world. Listen, dog, that would be, we would all only say that. But yeah, no, I mean, it is, it can be tricky, even if you know how to spot the difference between a raven and a crow, it can definitely be tricky. Because uh, yeah, they their profiles are quite similar and it's only when you can check out these, the details, like see nicely spra- spread out tail feathers or really see their, that that bristly little beard of on their necks for a raven up close that you can really tell the difference, but from a distance, it's very difficult.
0: Yeah, like I was trying to find what are any other differences and the Sibley Guide to Birds says American crows flap their wings more often than ravens when flying. But like, how am I going to get two of them side by side and count <laughs> the flaps and note it? Like, I know I know someone could do that, but I'm not skilled enough, man. I can't do I- it.
1: Now I'm trying to imagine Alex hurting a crow to raven. Like it's like, come on, fellas, come on, let's do this. We got it. We got it. We got to compare here. Trying to get him into a wind tunnel. Yeah, lots of scratches, lots of getting pecked.
0: And I'm dressed like a track and field coach or something, like with a little clicker <laughs> and a stopwatch. You've got, like you've
1: got. A, come on, yeah, a whistle and athletic shorts. Like come on, come on, boys, come on, fellas, let's let's get a hustle.
0: Just like the weirdest Ted Lasso. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: Getting your eye pecked out. <laughs>
0: oh okay pal okay like I'm, I'm, I'm ted lasso about it you know
1: <laughs> i would watch a ted lasso where he's trying to coach a team of crows
0: yeah. <laughs> there is there's a mexican comedy show about a soccer team the show is called club de cuervos it's the, the mascot is a crow so anyway that's fun ah, okay. uh,
1: <laughs> but it's not but the soccer is not played by crows
0: yeah it's a human team they didn't go mm, all the way
1: boring
0: Boring.
1: Nothing in the rules of soccer says that it can't be played by crows. Where in the rules right. does it say a crow can't play soccer?
0: Yeah, air crow. It even makes more sense. Like, yeah, you know. exactly.
1: Air Bud is a dog. He doesn't belong in the air. He's a dog. <laughs> the heck?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the next number here is a big estimate. The next number is 100,000 years ago. 100,000 years ago, that is the approximate date when humans developed hook-shaped tools.
1: Huh. Yeah.
0: Obviously kind of a guess, but psychologist Alex Taylor of the University of Auckland says that we think Homo sapiens evolved around 300,000 years ago, and then around 100,000 years ago, humans started making hook-shaped tools for hooking and pulling and grabbing things. That comes up in a crows episode because there were a couple species of crow- that are the only other animal known to make hook-shaped tools on purpose, which is oh, cool. Oh, are,
1: are we gonna talk about the new Caledonian crow?
0: Yes, that's the key one. I'm
1: so excited! I love, I love these guys.
0: New Caledonia, it's an island in the Pacific Ocean. It's home to the Kanak people, and it's part of the country of France. But it's also home to it's the an
1: archipelago. Is that how you say it? Ar- archipelago. Yeah. Ar- yeah, archipelago. Sure. Archipelago.
0: I think, I think you had it, but we progressed.
1: Archipelago. It's gone now. <laughs> I, I keep getting away from it. Archipelago.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and the crows there, the New Caledonian crow, are particularly amazing tool makers. And a whole other species of crow, by the way. Uh, but they've been observed to not just use items like sticks as tools, but also to use their beaks to fashion more complicated tools into a hook shape. And I'll link a particularly fun video of a TED Talk by University of Washington researcher John Marsloff, because he shows footage of a New Caledonian crow bending a wire into a hook and then pulling an item up by its handle with it. And then the crowd, like, uh, applauds it like it's a sports highlight. It's really cool.
1: Again, get start giving Corvid sports deals is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's I true. think that... Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah what's so interesting about this is in the wild they use sticks right and they stick it into wood or trees or to get at grubs insects that are inside and sometimes what happens is when you stick the stick in like the little grub will like bite onto the stick just instinctively and then a uh, new caledonian crow will pull out the grub as it's like biting onto the stick um and that's so cool. that's kind of that's like one way they can do it but then they we'll take these sticks and sort of modify them bend the end of the stick a little bit so it's more of a hook shape because they have found has given them more success in getting pulling out these insects and so in a lab setup right like they don't have access to wire in the wild but in a laboratory setup they do and so they can do even more complex tool shapes when we give them a strip of wire instead of a twig they can make a full-on hook to be able to correctly solve a puzzle by pulling up basically like a little container to help them get to a treat and so it's really awesome. really interesting that these natural behaviors right like they can you go from basically like when I stick a stick in here the grub bites onto it and I can pull it out to like hey if I actually hook the stick if I modify the stick it's even better at pulling out these bugs to like oh well this weird human gave me a wire I can use this to solve this puzzle it's, it's incredible
0: Yeah, like the hardware store unlocks their abilities in a way that (laughs) that nature does not yeah.
1: (laughs) Can can you imagine just letting these new Caledonian crows into a Home Depot? They would have a ball. (laughs) They would be more excited than like my dad. Yeah, you, you've seen a dad, a dad in Home Depot, you know, or a mom. It, it's I I want to be I don't want to do classic gender roles here. But, you know, the person who does the home renovation right and goes into a Home Depot and then there's that that glimmer in their eye as they smell the freshly cut plywood and glue or whatever's in there and they're ready to go check out some galvanized nails like you can see that in this new Caledonian crow's face how excited it would be to talk to Jeff about like different types of paint stripper
0: (laughs) each aisle is a new joy you know they're like oh and this one look at this PVC this PVC I mean these are shapes we don't have at home look at this (laughs) And you're like, yeah, I I know. Sure.
1: (laughs) I'm the person that does most of like the home. What would you call it? Like home renovation. We're not really renovation, but like fixing things and so on and getting hardware and the
0: tool time. Yeah, the
1: tool time. yeah tool time. I'm sort of the tool time of the household, and yeah i love I love a hardware store, and I love imagining myself as being as ingenious as one of these new Caledonian crows as I'm like smashing a hammer into a wall or something like yes, this is what so many years of evolution has brought me to
0: and, and with the human comparison, for one thing, Alex Taylor at University of Auckland, he suggests that it's possible not only are crows the only other animal making hook tools, but they might have done it before us because Mm -hmm. both species existed 100,000 years ago. It's totally plausible crows figured it out first. Like, why not? I'd believe it. Yeah.
1: Honestly, there's often a lot of hubris when we think back on human evolution where we assume, hey, we're the only ones who can use tools and we're the smartest and the best at everything. But yeah, no, I could totally see These guys figuring out the hook shape first when we were still just kind of bashing our little monkey heads against a rock to try to crush a (laughs) crush a nut.
0: And even with the heads, that leads us into another takeaway within the numbers here. Takeaway number two. Crows are so intelligent. They are changing our understanding of brain anatomy. Yes. And even our understanding of dinosaurs.
1: Yes. Yeah. I love this. I mean, one thing one thing to note is that technically birds are dinosaurs. They're not just like descended from dinosaurs. If you kind of look at the phylogeny of dinosaurs and birds, they're technically still just dinosaurs, a type of dinosaur that is still alive.
0: But hang on. When I was a kid, drawings of dinosaurs had no feathers whatsoever. And then they got them (laughs) later when I wasn't a kid anymore. So I feel they're very different, actually. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I base my understanding of the current world based on how I was when I was a kid, which is why I'm always surprised how short chairs and tables are. I'm like, wait, this is supposed to be taller. Uh, <laughs> not how I remember yeah. when I was a little kid. Uh, I'm going to yeah, no, I mean, write
0: to President Clinton <laughs> and President George W. Bush about this. They're still the president, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, our understanding of dinosaurs is changing a lot, both based on our a new sort of fossil evidence that shows that, yeah, they, a lot of them had feathers. Uh, and then also just like kind of understanding that, hey, birds are, th- are the only last living dinosaurs. So maybe we should use our understanding of birds to understand how dinosaurs were like in terms of, hey, maybe they were actually colorful. Because yes, it's true that they are obvious birds like uh, crows that are black or white there are plenty of brown birds but there are lots of really colorful birds Uh, and uh, a fun thing is there's recent evidence that T-Rex had lips Uh, it didn't just like its teeth didn't just stick out it had these nice plump lips to cover its teeth to protect them which I love it so like they're feathery they're colorful and they've got beautiful kissable lips
0: (laughs) Somebody's dream just came true, listening.
1: (laughs) You wanted to smooch a dinosaur? Congratulations.
0: (laughs) Quick, get on the horn to teen beat or whatever. They're now kissable. Uh.
1: (laughs) Someone with a time machine gets one little smooch in on a T-Rex before getting eaten. What what a confusing thing that must be for a T-Rex to get smooched by its food.
0: Too bad, T-Rex. You're my boyfriend now. You're my boyfriend now. <laughs> That's the deal. Uh, yeah, so cause... hard
1: to hug with those little arms.
0: <laughs> we as humans and trying to understand the world, we have tried to figure out anatomy over and over again. Like all science works, it's iterative. And there's a general belief about human cognition that we we think humans use a brain region called the cerebral cortex to solve problems. And you, you can Google the picture, but it's the large outer layer on top of the cerebrum. And that might be what we use for problem solving, but we've also assumed that makes humans special when it comes to problem solving. But crows in particular are also excellent problem solvers despite lacking that structure of the brain. And we've proceeded to find out that crows just have a differently structured brain than us and than great apes. They have, next number here is about 1.5 billion with a B. A crow brain has about 1.5 billion neurons. It's a similar total to great ape species like gorillas, but they're just smaller neurons, more tightly packed. Like they structured their brains very differently, probably in order to keep them small and light for flying, but it's still incredibly useful for problem solving and with that revelation we find ourselves saying like oh we know dinosaurs had tiny brains but maybe they were also brilliant and maybe other animals are also you know animal intelligence is hard to measure but maybe other animals are brilliant without having the human shaped brain that we just assumed is superior and different
1: yeah i mean we kind of have this idea of like big brain equals big thoughts but it's it's It really is literally sort of in the structure of the brain. Like you want, it, it's the ability to make neural connections. So if that is condensed, right, into a small brain, but very efficient brain, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, assuming that a big computer is going to have better processing power than a small smartphone, and it's like it could but that's not always the case. It depends on how efficient that smartphone is. It depends on the, you know, how, like, how much. Look, I, I'm I'm speaking on my depth here because I don't know how computers work or phones work. But I'm going to say <laughs> the circuits are more efficient or something. I can, but that's I, how...
0: I can fill in here. What we do is we pray to the gods of podcasting at little altars. You and, me. and then from there the podcast is uploaded yeah. to the listener. Uh, so that that's There's how it works.
1: Tiny men. Tiny men in our computers. Um yeah, no, I mean <laughs> I I think it yes, for brains though, which I know a little bit more about, is that yeah, you want You want a lot of folds and connections, like having more neural structures does somewhat translate to being able to have more complex cognition, but it's really fine if it's a small brain, as long as you have all of those neural connections. It's not like it has to be, it's all in sort of how you use that little brain.
0: Exactly. And this is all cutting edge science, especially that neuron number is from a couple of years ago. But, you know, now and in the past, we've observed crows doing things that we presumed a human-shaped brain was necessary to do. Uh, there's amazing studies at the University of Washington finding that American crows remember human faces and can hold grudges against humans.
1: That study's hilarious, by the way. That is the funniest because stu- like they had researchers wear these masks and then hold a taxidermied crow out. And it's so cr- – if you, look, like, look up the University of Washington Crow study and look at those photos because they are so creepy. They look like a horror movie. And Crows reacted basically the same as a human would react given the same scene of, like, what the hell are you doing? And were really <laughs> upset at this person. And they would memorize that face, that mask. You know, the I mean, the reason they wore masks was first to make sure that they could, you know y- – have that as sort of a variable that remained constant. And secondly, because if they memorized the face of the actual person, they would harass that person for many years. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah they, they learned, <laughs> they learned to hold a grudge against people who were sort of menacingly holding this, uh, this taxidermied crow, this crow body. Uh, they could even pass on these grudges to their offspring and teach them that, Hey, we don't like that guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. That's one of the few animals that they have to bother thinking about how the animals will think of them after the study, because crows are just out there and also super smart. So, you know, other animals won't be like, you're the one who made me run through a maze for cheese and then come after you, you know, like (laughs) it's it's too smart of an animal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, like we do studies with like pet dogs where we we do silly things and then, but the dogs are so forgiving, but a crow, Uh uh-uh.
0: And, and they've learned other systems, like apparently both in Japan and in California, crows have been observed using human cars as nutcrackers. Yes. They will <laughs> watch for cars to stop at a red light, drop nuts in front of the car tires path, future path, and then yes. the car drives over the nut when the light turns green and they enjoy the cracked open nut. Good for them.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting to me. I think there was some observations of them using areas, too, that are easier for them to cross. So like crosswalk areas or streetlights so that they can actually get to the nut once it's been cracked open. Um, But I mean, it's not I don't think this is like a really rigorous study. They've done just like the the observation, like people observing these uh, crows behavior.
0: We have the mix of science and regular observation helping here. Like, there's just so much evidence of crow intelligence at, at across all these species, too. Like, that, yes. that New Caledonian crow is particularly amazing. And there's a study the New York Times covered recently scientists built a whole new task for them. They built a vending machine style device and gave the crows pieces of paper. And if they tore the right shape and piece of paper, they could feed it into the machine like a dollar bill and get treats. And the crows appeared to mentally model each other's paper-tearing techniques in order to imitate successes, which is extremely advanced mimicry for any animal, including humans.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I've heard of these studies before where they just a general paper strip that they uh, can find and then turn in for treats, but the This sounds like a new study because they are actually shaping the paper in a specific shape in order for it to work, which is amazing.
0: Yeah, it it seems like we just keep doing a study saying, well, crows can do that. And then we try to come up with a new thing and then they do that, too, (laughs) is my sense of it.
1: (laughs) Next time they're just going to be counterfeiting money. Crows are going to be like printing out (laughs) fake money going into 7-Elevens and getting their uh, uh, tackies and onion rings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then they do that and the next year. It's like, hey, crow, do my tax return. Do it. <laughs> and then they can do it. Like, oh, OK, well, great. OK. Oh, man, uh, I would
1: I would love a crow to do my tax return. I'm so sick of these, you know, predatory tax companies <laughs> that, you know, do your taxes for you, but then lobby to make it harder to do your taxes. Let's have crows do it.
0: Right. Instead of a predatory company, let's get a omnivore scavenging company, right? Yeah, like there you that's... go. <laughs> I'd,
1: I'd let a I'd let a crow take financial advantage of me, honestly.
0: Uh, we'll cut this out so no crows listen and do that. that we'll protect you. <laughs> Can't put that out there. Uh, there's even like with with iterating on these studies, they did a bunch of new Caledonian crow studies. They said, okay, these are geniuses. And then other researchers said, hey, there's another Hawaiian crow species called the alala, and that has a similar face to New Caledonian crows. So they did studies of those and checked, and those are also brilliant at making tools. Uh, Also, the alala is extinct in the wild. There's only several dozen left in captivity. So, Hmm. you know, hopefully that discovery helps people proceed to continue conserving them and get them back out into the wild. But yeah, every it seems like every time we check every species of crow, something surprising and cool is an ability they have.
1: It's amazing. This is not so much a scientific study, but more of just a video I found of <laughs> a crow playing one of those games where it's like, you know, the little uh like shaped block in the shape shape hole shapey game where it's yeah. like you have the shape. It's a square block or a round block or whatever. You put it in the hole that corresponds with that shape. And it was given this, like, miniature version and this little... It's like this, uh, I guess, rescue crow, like, trying out this game. And then it just gets so frustrated with the game. It, it, like, picks up the entire game and, like, throws it down off the table. And I love that because it's like, yes, yes, little crow, this is how I react as well when I can't solve a puzzle. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like the last last thing to say here is apparently crows are even changing our concept of finding populations of animals for animal studies because there's a there's a past few decades realization with human studies where we figured out that a lot of human studies are based on specifically the like white undergraduates at colleges. Like, those tend mm. to be the subjects, and so a lot of our results are based on people that are called WEIRD. The acronym is WEIRD. It stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And, and you know, so that's meaningful <laughs> for studying humans. Like, we need all varieties of humans. I'm going to link about a recent study of crows where they realized that, hey, maybe this has been happening with animal subjects, too. yeah. And they coined the acronym STRANGE for basically the kinds of animals that are willing to be studied in a study because they found that a lot of crows were too smart and needed some coaxing to be bothered with this stupid human study that is not worth doing.
1: Yeah, this is something that happens a lot in animal behavioral studies, particularly when you're using captive animals, which is pretty much the only way you can do like a controlled lab study. Uh, you can have like observe animal observations in the wild, but it's so hard to control for everything. So a lot of these behavioral studies are done in a lab setting. And then, so you t- you're taking this animal and putting it in this very alien environment where their motivations aren't going to be sort of uh, the same as they would be in the wild. And so you... you the like learning from like what they're able to do. It's like you're not necessarily learning what their natural behaviors are. You're also maybe selecting, like you said, the strange crows that allow themselves to uh, be part of a behavioral study. I mean, this is the whole thing with our misunderstanding of dog behavior for so long was because we based our understanding of wolf social structures on captive wolves, whose social structures were completely different from wild wolves. And that whole like oh. dominant alpha stuff, was, which was debunked, is like because we used this wolf population in a sort of a wolf rescue that was not at all. They were under very strange circumstances because they were in a captive environment. So that's their behavior was different from what it typically is in the wild.
0: That's amazing. and I, I love that with the smartest animals, it's particularly acute. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. oh, we've looked at all the most catchable crows and dogs and come up with amazing results. Like, (laughs) I I don't know. What about the less catchable ones?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a bit of a problem. And then, like, if you have captive born and raised animals, they're also going to their behaviors are going to be different because they were raised by humans. So it's it's. Yeah, behavioral studies in general for both humans and animals are very difficult to pull off and have uh, be actually either representative of reality or scientifically rigorous. It's it's really hard to get both in a study.
0: And that, that social element is so big for crows. We have just done two takeaways and a bunch of numbers. So we'll be back with two more takeaways about that social element and about the creation of the world. Folks, as you know, this show exists because of listener support. The vast majority of what makes this show possible, the only reason this show can financially and business-wise exist is direct listener support. So thank you very much to absolutely everybody who does that. If you go to MaximumFun.org join, you can do that. And then you can also be someone who makes this entire experience and community possible for everybody else and for yourself. You get to know that you are one of the people making Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. On top of that, I try to find additional support to stretch out that support and make it workable by getting support from companies that have something that you will actually like, because, you know, I actually like it, and I think it'll work out for everybody. This week, we are also supported by Wild Grain. Wild Grain is a wonderful company that wants to send you bake-from-frozen sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. One more time, sourdough breads, fresh pastas, artisanal pastries. In other words, the three best foods. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain helps their own community. They're based in Boston, and Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank for each new member of, you know, getting a Wild Grain box. So you can eat good and do good all at the same time. As I tape this, I am stuffed with Tonarelli. Tonarelli is pasta we had from Wild Grain last night for dinner. It was fantastic. That was a really, really enjoyable meal, and also something that is easy to... Pull out of the freezer, don't even need to thaw it, drop it in the pot, and let it boil to the exact right al dente texture you want. Fresh pasta is also just exciting. I don't know if you've had that versus a dry pasta in boxes from the store. Boy, it has a bounce, it has a texture, it has a life to it. Let's get you set up with that. Plus, hey, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box. I am also full of croissants. When you go to wildgrain.com/sifpod to start your subscription. You heard me right. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com/sifpod. That is wildgrain.com/sifpod or you can use promo code sifpod at checkout.
1: Back for another game. You know it. What's going on?
0: Just one more week till Max Fun Drive.
1: <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised fifty thousand dollars for charity last year,
0: and we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again?
1: Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content.
0: Yeah. Plus, they know to go to maximumfun.org/newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check.
1: What? Hang on!
0: It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan, Jesse, Go. So, I had my kids do it.
1: Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes.
0: Bad jokes?
1: Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that... You're going to interview them, and then you just stay there, like, like really quiet, and try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring.
0: Because of Jordan, right? Not me?
1: Because of both of you.
0: Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. couple more numbers and takeaways here, starting with takeaway number three... crows are family oriented birds with two surprising reactions to death.
1: It it tugs on my heartstrings always when when any animal shows that they kind of have this I don't want to call it understanding but at least they they seem to react in you know eerily human like ways to situations that are tragic.
0: Yeah, and and there's going to be a real range of either similarity or dissimilarity to human values here, but a lot of it is similar. Yes. Many very intelligent animals are very social. And the Cornell Ornithology Lab says the American crow species, for example, often nests in giant communal groups, especially in winter. They start at sizes of a few hundred crows and can get much bigger there, there's one report from the 1910s that there was a group of two million crows in Oklahoma. I don't totally believe that number, but there are <laughs> massive gatherings of thousands of crows whenever there's room and when the crows want to.
1: <laughs> Just when they feel like it, when they feel like partying. Yeah.
0: Apparently, especially in winter, like it, it helps them gather together to find food and, and I guess be warm together. I don't yeah. believe two million of them were in one place in Oklahoma. That seems wrong, but, but there are big groups. Yeah,
1: it seems like a lot.
0: Along with just being giant groups, apparently crows form very specific family groups. Cornell's Kevin McGowan says that a crow family can include up to 15 individuals. It's also not just the simple ties of parents and biological children. There can be step-parent relationships, siblings, nephews, nieces. Also, crow children may stick around the family for several years to help raise younger children.
1: It's so sweet. I love... I love a happy family in nature. And yeah, I mean, I think that you do see this particularly among, not always, there are plenty of intelligent animals that are more solitary, but yeah, particularly among very intelligent animals, these sort of multi-generational family groups.
0: Yeah, a a lot of times, especially with non-mammals, I just assume they, let's say, lay an egg and then just move on but crows are like <laughs> crows are really on it it's not that cold-hearted reptile thing i think of
1: yeah i mean there there is there is dedicated offspring care from everything from invertebrates like centipedes to you know to frogs to reptiles to birds and Amazing. sometimes it is sometimes it is just lay an egg and go see ya <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah like like crows apparently even do adoption in their families where they'll take in stray individuals and that apparently in particular happens in the west nile virus epidemic around the turn of the millennium around around 1999 there was a mass die-off of many bird species including crows and researchers saw a lot of crow family adoption as they monitored the groups
1: (sighs) that's so wonderful it's so sweet they just they're coming together as a community. And it takes a it takes a village to raise a little crow. That's so sweet. I love them so much.
0: It's just great. And it's so different from presuming a crow knows somebody died and is friends with ghosts. You know, like it's not <laughs> how we view them culturally.
1: I mean, you know, I could see, I could definitely see a crow being a friend to Casper, the friendly ghost.
0: Oh, that's true. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, hanging out, being nice to dead people instead of making them answer questions on a Ouija board, you know, like it's kind (laughs) of rude to like interrupt someone's afterlife to be like, hey, move around this game board so that I can laugh with my friends. It's like, you know what, let me let me have my afterlife retirement.
0: First, they tried to recruit me for a stupid study and then they recruited me for not even one of the top 10 board games. Ouija, forget it. Come on, pick up Catan sometime. It's great.
1: Yeah, why don't you play sellers of Catan with ghosts? Come on, give him something a little, a little bit of uh, a little bit of problem solving. Yeah. <laughs> I just i I think there's something really wonderful about this feeling of like you know we. Often in evolutionary biology, there's this idea of like, well, you, you're you not really going to do anything altruistic because it's not necessarily good for your survival. But we do see altruism in nature, and it doesn't mean that it's not being done for their evolutionary survival, but uh, it is, I think it is something to consider that, yeah, nature is not always just brutally efficient. Animals aren't always just kind of ruthless. They can have... Uh, emotions that will make them respond to something like a little nestling in need in the same kind of empathetic response that a human might do.
0: Yeah, and then that's all true. And then also it turns out crows have one particularly weird reaction to death that is totally different from humans. There's (laughs) relatively recent observations of some crows having sexual intercourse with the body Ah. of a dead crow and also, apparently, many animal species have been variously observed doing this, but <laughs> that, that team at the University of Washington and Dr. Kaylee Swift, they've done the first actual scientific study of any animal species doing this behavior. In a sample of crows they observed, about 24% of them responded to a dead crow by doing something with the body, like pecking at it or moving it or something. And then a tiny subset of those encounters involved something sexual. And so... That's super weird and not understood yet.
1: And most humans don't do that. Most humans don't do that. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, if people heard the recent ducks episode and bonus show, we talked about ducks being one of the very few birds that have penises, but crows, like almost all other birds, do not. And so this sexual interaction is just placing the body openings into contact with each other that are for sexual stuff.
1: It's it's just kinda like smooshing two Cheerios together, to be honest, folks.
0: Yeah, that's uh how it's described. <laughs> they don't reference the Cheerios brand, probably for sponsorship reasons. But yeah, that's what God, the articles it. say. Yeah. I
1: fumbled a valuable Cheerios sponsorship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the other crow reaction to death is kind of human kind of not it is holding a gathering around a dead crow and this is the main thing they do that that sex thing is very strange and rare um apparently when a crow finds a dead crow they'll call out and they'll bring other crows to the location Uh, i found some sources that called this a crow funeral but it's not clear that mourning is going on it seems to be mainly a strategic thing where they draw attention to the death and try to be on the lookout for who or what killed this fellow crow
1: it's a murder mystery. Yeah. A murder, murder mystery. Yeah.
0: And in the bonus show, we'll talk about the whole murder thing that they're associated with.
1: It's funny because like, you know, the whole thing, like it's a murder of crows, a group of crows. I, I don't think most ornithologists refer to a group of crows as a murder. I think they just say a flock of crows.
0: It is. I Yeah. It is fun to imagine scientists. Bothering to use that term murder and like swooshing yeah. a cape as they say it or something like that's not the vibe. <laughs> it's, it's serious work.
1: <laughs> yes, but I do. I like that crows want to get to the bottom of things. You've got you've got Crow Columbo. You've got Crow Miss Marple. You've got Crow Sherlock. I just want to see like a ooh, crow version
0: ooh, of. ooh Poirot Crow. <gasps>
1: Poirot Crow. Very good. Yes.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Felt good. Uh, no,
1: no, it's a good one. It's definitely a good one. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not going to make people turn off the podcast. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: folks, send in your drawings for me of a crow with a big mustache like Paro. Thank you. Yeah, very excited about it.
1: Yeah, do that. Yeah, like I, I, I dig a crow mystery where they are trying to find the culprit, and it is interesting because yeah, when we see like a group of animals. Surrounding a dead animal, like our first thought is probably like, this is awake, but it could also, yeah, be like, this is alarming and we're kind of anxious about that. So like we should probably have safety in numbers right now.
0: Yeah. And and that is also probably the most human-like compared to humans not in the the towns and cities that we built and the, like, structured life we built. Like, if you're a human out in the woods and you find a dead human, it's much more of this crow reaction. It's like, hey, what happened?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that through the practical things, right, like, hey, this, like, being alarmed at a death, right, for your own self-preservation, uh, or because, like, if a family member dies, this is bad for your survival. I think those kinds of things, right, do turn into emotions over over evolutionary timescales, right? Like, yeah, our brains sort of give us motivation to do the kinds of behaviors that benefit us. Those motivations comes in the forms of like either reward or fear. Uh, or, or you know, like sadness. Uh, and I think the more complex emotions of grief can kind of evolve out of these more practical things. Like we need to figure out what's going on. Who's to say if maybe our funerals of today and our wakes of today are not sort of a much more evolved version of sort of like a gathering to ensure safety of the group when a death has happened.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's yeah, it's such an amazing progression to think about. Wow. And with the with all cultural practices, that leads us to the last takeaway of the main show. Because takeaway number four Crows hold a huge range of meanings across world cultures, in particular in native North America.
1: Yeah, yeah, because I think like for um, you know, what do what do we call them? Weirds. Westerners, uh, <laughs> yeah, weird. Weird, weird wasps, uh, yeah. Western uh, <laughs> European culture, you know, it's like like crows are sort of an omen, you know, this like creepy thing that, you know, is there to give you bad news or peck your eyes out, which does not happen, by the way.
0: Right. It's not really related to the general practices of this extremely common world bird. They live on every continent except South America and Antarctica, and they yep. don't really act the European and U.S. horror movie way. Uh, <laughs> so this, this takeaway is a few stories of people associating crows with love, with immortality, with an apocalypse in one case, and with a few tales of the creation of the world. It's it's so many things to so many people.
1: I love, I love animals in folklore, mythology, and creation myths. It's like I... I shoot that directly into my veins. I love it.
0: Yay. Because, yeah, the the key source here, it's an amazing book about specifically Crow mythology and lore. It's named Crow. It's written by Borea Sachs, who's an author and a lecturer at the University of Illinois Springfield.
1: That's a great name.
0: Borea Sachs. Glad to know it.
1: Fantastic name.
0: (laughs) And I'm also linking further stuff about Native North America. And uh, in particular, there's a Crow nation. This got me curious about their name. The Crow Nation, that's an English exonym for a set of three native peoples whose historical homelands include parts of present-day Montana, South Dakota, and Wyoming. Uh, they're also still here, very prominent group of modern people. They also hold a tribal fair every year in August, draws about 50,000 attendees usually. This, uh, this episode topic got me curious about their name specifically, and it turns out that the English word and concept Crow may or may not be accurate as far as what they call themselves, at least as a translation, hmm. the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian says people of the Crow Nation call themselves the Apsalake, And Apsalake is a word meaning children of the large beaked bird.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: So it is a bird. It has a large beak. Right. And then uh, but apparently... But there's lots of
1: North American birds with large beaks.
0: And that's the thing. Yeah, apparently French colonizers learned the name Opsalake and what it means and then applied the French word for crow to the group. That could be the right bird, but there's also two ways it could be inaccurate. It could be either we misunderstood what Opsalake really means or those French guys misidentified birds in a basic birder way. Like the Opsalake were like, we're named after that. And they like looked and were like, is that a crow? And messed it up.
1: Yeah, I think in general, colonizers were extremely sloppy. Uh, One could say even (laughs) inconsiderate when it came to trying to learn the language and the culture of the people here.
0: Calm down! Wow, (laughs) hold on. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean it's like it's the same. Like there was so much hubris in terms of learning both the learning about the wildlife in North America and also learning about the people who are already here. And so we're still sort of those repercussions still uh, carry through to this day where so much of our understanding of languages, culture, and also the animals that were here is sort of tainted by the the sloppiness and the the arrogance of the, the people who came here.
0: Yeah, uh, that kind of feeds into also the U.S. and European horror movie version of crows. I think if colonizers had paid more attention to the many legends we're about to talk about, they would have additional ideas about crows to think about and share. It would be more fun. Because it turns out many peoples used crows or ravens as central figures in creation stories. Their Inuit peoples have a story of a primeval being called Talungasak, who learned there was clay down at the bottom of a void And then Talungasak took the form of a crow or raven to fly down, get the clay, and then mold that into plants, animals, and humans and create the world that we have. And then the Koryak people of modern Siberia have similar stories. People of modern Western Canada have a story of a great raven calling the world into being. The Athabascan people have a story of two primordial ravens. There's a white raven that creates the world and then a jealous black raven brother that kills him.
1: It's so interesting that crows are significant in so many creation myths, and I have to wonder if it's because people would observe intelligent behavior in crows, this kind of creative behavior that you see in crows, and then would imagine them as a creative force or something that would potentially, uh, they would see a crow carrying sticks or something or uh, doing something that seemed kind of intelligent, and then imagine these creation myths from that.
0: I I think that's almost definitely it. Yeah. And they just didn't get that idea imprinted on them that crows are evil or creepy. So they were open yeah. to like, oh, look at this brilliant bird. That's cool that it is so smart.
1: Like they will they will scavenge, like they are scavengers, so they might eat uh, carrion. They they would show up to graveyards because they might be drawn to the smell of, you know, a corpse, but you know, we just like basically put on them that this means that they're creepy or that they, there's some kind of bad omen. It's just yeah. a behavior that a lot of scavenging animals will do when they, when they smell uh, carrion. It's not nothing malicious.
0: Yeah. And, and crows are so adaptable. Like that intelligence we talked about means they can be near human situations. And so they're kind of in every situation, right? There's a bunch of other traditions here about other crows stuff the Hopi nation of the southwestern part of the modern U.S. They have a central crow mother figure in their traditions, who's the maternal ancestor of all kachinas. And kachinas are dozens of the spirit world. They're represented by figurines and by dancing. It's just a huge part of all their beliefs. There's also the Pawnee people. They had a traditional male military group called the Crow Lance Society, which is about a legend of crows protecting and reviving a lost scout who was out in the wilderness, Crows have also had one significant apocalyptic meaning In in among Native peoples here. There was a event that became a tragic event in the 1800s called the Ghost Dance, which could be like 100 podcasts. But the short version is that the Lakota and the Shoshone and many other people in the plains of the U.S. and Canada participated in an apocalyptic religious movement, believing that either an end time was coming or a supernatural event would remove white colonizers from the continent all at once or bring people back from the dead. Uh, And it's centered on dancing and large group dances. And a lot of times that involved clothing or songs featuring crows, like the Arapaho people sang about crows circling over their heads or about a whirlwind figure putting on a headdress of crow feathers. And there was something apocalyptic there, Uh, That ghost dance also turned tragic because the U.S. military treated it as like an uprising, even though it wasn't. Hmm. Uh, And the the peak of that was the massacre at Wounded Knee, which was uh, (sighs) partly coming from tensions around just ghost dances happening and white colonizers being told to suppress it.
1: Oh my god. Are you having a reaction to your own genocide? Well, we're going to do more genocide to respond to your reaction to the genocide. It's really quite yeah. horrifying.
0: 100%. Like you, there were even some ghost dance beliefs about the bison returning to various regions, mm-hmm. and that was driven by just yeah. real bison being wiped out of regions. Like it's it's all just oh. real stuff. So, yeah.
1: God, that's just so, it's so gutting.
0: But it, and crows got swept up in that, too. And they're a global animal, too. Like, I'm excited to focus on Native North America. There's also many other stories of different crow lore. Like, there's a Japanese legend about a monster attempting to devour the sun, but then the rulers of heaven create a crow to fly into the monster's mouth and choke it and prevent it.
1: (laughs) That's great. I I like that it's uh, sort of just like, you know what? I'm going to pull an octopus move and just choke this, choke this uh, thing by going into its mouth. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I I wanted to high five an octopus beforehand. Like you've got this. And then a wing (laughs) high fives an arm. (laughs) The
1: octopus goes and chokes a dolphin and the crow goes and chokes a giant monster. Yeah.
0: And the fun moral of that Japanese legend is that crows gain divine permission to eat human crops as a reward because you made this sacrifice you get to come eat our food and that becomes an explanation of the thing where part of why crows thrive in a a human dominated planet is they can eat our crops really effectively
1: yeah i mean that's uh that's why we made scarecrows which i don't think work do they
0: yeah I, i couldn't find much super solid stuff other than People started doing this, and it's not clearly effective. Uh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know because I think like maybe it might work for a little bit, and then the crow's gonna catch on that that's not that's that scarecrow's not going anywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, like it, it, I feel like people just got more excited about making a weird figurine, but I don't yeah. know if it actually has helped that much.
1: But it, it, I, I do like I like that idea that you know what, like hey, you know what. We we owe these crows some of our crops. Just let them have it.
0: And then some other variety beliefs around the world. Apparently medieval Muslim people believed that they were specifically allowed to kill crows while on pilgrimages to Mecca. In general, there was a belief that people should not kill animals while they're on a pilgrimage to Mecca, but crows were designated one of the five scoundrels
1: which are oh, no. noxious,
0: like, obnoxious animals that pilgrims were allowed to kill. It was oh, serpents, dear. rats, mad dogs, kites, which are birds of prey, and then crows. They were allowed to do that.
1: Oh, that feels unfair.
0: And then at the same time, there was a separate medieval Muslim belief that you could take the spleen of a crow, hang the spleen of the crow around your neck, and that works as a love charm.
1: So I a mean, lot of crow
0: beliefs, a lot going on.
1: Yeah, the smell alone, I think, would be very attractive. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's like, there's a, um, there's an ancient uh, Greek method of love charm where you tie a bird, it's a, the bird is a rye neck bird, and then you like spin it around on the string. And that's supposed to help. Uh, be a love charm so i feel like there are a lot of cultures in which we do something weird to a bird to try to get someone to
0: fall in love with us yeah it, maybe it's the bird monogamy thing because there's also one belief here where crows are essentially a love bird like a dove uh, there's the hellenic period of egyptian history where they were heavily greek influenced apparently because crows like many birds are monogamous, Hellenic Egyptians represented love with them.
1: Oh, and in particular
0: love between the gods Ares and Aphrodite, they would use two crows as a symbol of it. Yeah. Which is fun. You can do them that way. Like that's the opposite of what I was taught, but sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to see like you release crows instead of doves at a wedding or actually do neither cuz you shouldn't do that, but like
0: uh, Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: invite you know what just invite crows to your wedding like put out a tray of peanuts for them
0: if there's one animal you could teach to bring a wedding gift i feel like it's a crow i feel like you could get get that across to them
1: i bet you could probably train a crow to uh be the ring bearer um (laughs) but equal chance that it just runs off with the ring forever and then pawns it to buy some like great crow snacks (laughs)
0: i mean it's smart can't can't blame them it's it's a clever economic (laughs) idea messes up my wedding but hey you know and then because the the last last belief here to talk about is a few separate cultures develop stories about crows either being extremely long-lived or immortal
1: Huh. interesting Uh, and
0: it, it seems to be based on how Crows are very adaptable and are around humans a lot, and so maybe they just seemed invincible as a result. Like crows are doing great all the time. Might might because they live forever.
1: Yeah, but I mean their actual lifespan is I thought around like ten years in the wild. Is that? Let me sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I saw that research and yeah, like ten, maybe twenty if they're cared for. But yeah, they they don't live forever or nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they have. I mean, they have a similar lifespan to like a dog, so it's uh it's not nothing. But yeah, they're certainly not. It's not like a par. I would imagine I could better believe like a parrot being immortal if I was if I lived in those times because parrots do actually live to be quite long. But yeah, crows um, don't live, you know, that long.
0: Yeah, and and yet people, I think, just from the population of them, decided they're tough. In, yeah. in, in the Hindu epic, the Ramayana, there's a part where the Lord of Death, Yama, takes the form of a crow to hide from a demon. And later in the epic, Yama transforms back and thanks crows by blessing them with imperviousness to disease and imperviousness to dying of old age. Oh,
1: so he sets well, it up so nice they can them.
0: only be actively killed. That's it. <laughs>
1: I I like that he, like, thanks the crows for just not ratting them out. Like, thanks for not snitching on me for uh, being cool about it.
0: Yeah. They're, like, explicitly not friends with demons in the Ramayana.
1: Yeah. Cool.
0: (laughs) Totally different. (laughs) And then the, the other big culture of this was the Greeks. Apparently, the Greek poet Hesiod recorded a whole set of strange animal lifespan beliefs. He believed that a crow can live as long as nine generations of humans. So that's
1: oddly specific,
0: and that he he was big on math here because he said a crow lives as long as nine generations of humans. Like, theoretically, if a human lifespan is 70 years, that's that's 630 years of life.
1: But he just, he just like nine generations that's totally arbitrary. Where did he where was he getting that information? Like, uh, yeah,
0: (laughs) because he wouldn't live to see it. So I have no idea, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just like the salon of my ass.
0: Uh, Exactly. And then he said, like, not only is this true, Crow lives nine generations of humans. He believed a stag lives four times as long as a crow. Great. Uh, And then he believed a raven lives three times as long as a stag. hmm. So I know that's a lot of math, but if we keep assuming... One human lives 70 years, that means a crow lives 630 years, and it means a raven lives 7,560 years.
1: You know, you gotta hand it to him. He did do some math, math completely (laughs) unhinged from reality in any way, but he did do some math.
0: It is fun that in old times, that's probably all it took. Like, well, he added numbers. Most of us can't do that, so...
1: Right, like that's a really big number. I can't even, I wouldn't have come up with such a big number. It must be true.
0: <laughs> you try to chisel something different and your hand starts hurting and you give up. Like, he's right. <laughs> I, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs>
1: I imagine he just like, he got a crow and he's like observing it to see how long it lives. And it's been like about a week and he's getting really bored. And he's like, I bet this thing lives 700 years. <laughs>
0: Chisel, publish. Great. (laughs) Hitting the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, folks, that's the main episode for this week. Welcome to the outro with fun features for you, such as help remembering this episode with a run back through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, the world's crows are not just black-feathered. Takeaway number two, crows are so intelligent they're changing our understanding of brain anatomy and our understanding of dinosaurs. Takeaway number three, crows are family-oriented birds with two surprising reactions to death. And takeaway number four, crows hold an incredible range of meanings across world cultures, in particular in native North America. Those are the takeaways. Also, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now if you support this show at MaximumFun.org. Members get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is the strange history of crows being called murders and crow murder. Visit sifpod.fun for that bonus show, for a library of almost 12 dozen other secretly incredibly fascinating bonus shows, and a catalog of all sorts of Max Fun bonus shows. It is special audio, it's just for members. Thank you for being somebody who backs this podcast operation. Additional fun things, check out our research sources on this episode's page at MaximumFun.org. Key sources this week include the Cornell Bird Lab, the Atlantic, National Geographic, and also a book all about crow folklore and mythology. And that's by Boria Sachs, who is a lecturer at the University of Illinois Springfield. This is also an extra good week to use native land.ca because we talked about many native peoples, and especially that last takeaway about the folklore of crows. I'm also using that native-land.ca resource to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Canarsie and Lenape peoples, also Katie taped this in the country of Italy, and I want to acknowledge that in my location, in many other locations in the Americas and elsewhere, Native people are very much still here. That kind of acknowledgement feels worth doing on each episode, and hey, join the free SIF Discord. We're on there sharing stories and resources about Native people and life. We're also talking about this episode on the Discord, and hey, would you like a tip on another episode? Because each week I'm finding you something randomly incredibly fascinating by running all the past episode numbers through a random number generator. This week's pick is episode 60, that's about the topic of libraries. Fun fact, a lot of world libraries are letting go of late fees. It's just counterproductive, and they can do better. So I recommend that episode. I also recommend my wonderful co-host Katie Golden and her weekly podcast, Creature Feature, about animals and science and more. Our theme music is Unbroken, Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our members. And thank you to all our listeners. I'm thrilled to say we will be back next week with more secretly incredibly fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then.
1: MaximumFun.org
0: Comedy and culture.
1: Artist owned, audience supported.